0: Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper Atypical Timing and Presentation of Periventricular Hemorrhagic Infarction in Preterm Infants, The Role of Thrombophilia, by Hartman and colleagues, which is due to be published in the February issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Professor Linda Devries of the Department of Neonatology, Wilhelmina Children's Hospital, Utrecht, the Netherlands, who's one of the authors, and Dr. Francis Cowan from Imperial College, University of London, UK. Please, can we start with you, Linda, to discuss the paper's background?
1: Thank you, Peter. Yes, well, as usual, these things are kind of starting off with a chance finding, so I remember... That's quite a long time ago we have our routine to perform weekly ultrasound in all our babies and also make certain that the child is going to have a discharge ultrasound before being referred to our level 2 hospital. And in one of these children we were quite surprised and also shocked to find that the baby who was doing very well at three weeks of age was found to have on his discharge ultrasound a large parenchymal hemorrhage without actually an associated IVH. And we felt that this was really a very odd thing to find in a child who was by then 33 weeks. So that's why we performed a thrombophilia screen. And we found that the child had a factor V Leiden mutation. And since then, we kind of more often started to look at the thrombophilia in children that were atypical in their presentation of having this parenchymal hemorrhage. So that was actually the beginning of it all. So then between 2005 and 2010, we systematically looked at 62 preterm infants who presented with a preventricular hemorrhagic infarction, and these were studied. And 17 of these had an atypical presentation, and uh, the others had a more typical presentation. So when we say atypical, we found that these children either had a large hemorrhage present on admission, because we always perform an ultrasound as part of the admission procedure. So that would have been usually within three hours or up to six hours, which is unusual. Or the children were perfectly stable, and they were more than four days old. And then they were on a routine ultrasound, having parenchymal hemorrhage as well. So these were identified as being atypical. And the other children were more kind of one of the mill having a large bleed during the first three days during a course of hemodynamic instability, being on the ventilator, and also being a little bit less mature.
2: Well, thank you for asking me to talk about this paper with Linda. Linda, it's very nice data. I think, first of all, I'd like to say it emphasizes the need for regular scanning of newborn babies on the neonatal unit. It's really important that this scanning is done early and regularly, and had you not done that, you wouldn't have been able to time this and therefore investigate this interesting group of children. It also means that, as quite a lot of the children had neurological consequences, Had they not been scanned regularly, these would have appeared out of the blue and would have taken quite some time to be brought to attention later on and to be dealt with and discussed. And that also would be very distressing for parents. So I think this paper, first of all, really emphasizes the need for good and regular ultrasound scanning of babies on our neonatal units. What I was interested to know is... Did you think of maybe expanding the range of children that you would investigate from a prothrombotic point of view, perhaps those who were just a bit older when they acquired their infarct rather than at an atypical time, or even those with risk factors who uh, maybe the risk factors weren't sufficient, but a prothrombotic beta was enough to tilt them into having a lesion? Um, Have you done any of the other children as well?
1: Yes. Well... In fact, the gestational age range was up to 34 weeks, so some of the, these children were like 33 weeks or so older than you would expect for the children to have a hemorrhagic parenchymal infarction. We have also looked at this in a few full-term babies who came with a parenchymal hemorrhage or established for at birth, but in those we haven't yet been able to find any proctified Leiden, which is most common as an associated.
2: Right. Well, that's interesting. You didn't find it in the term children. No, Hmm. not yet. No. And I have had the experience of finding uh, pro-thrombotic abnormalities in children who just present with a late IVH rather than necessarily a parenchymal lesion. What's your experience been with those? Uh, Is that a useful thing to do as well, do you think?
1: Well, not in the population we have looked at so far. We have been doing this as well, um, we haven't actually found any factor of in, in those particular children either. So it has been more in the kind of group that we have reported here than right. any child with an IPH, even if uh, it, that would have been unexpected. Okay, okay.
2: Do you think there's anything different about the lesions in these children from those that acquire them at a more typical time? Can you look at them, and do they look a bit different?
1: Um, they, they do, in a, in a way, look a little bit different because in many of them we didn't have an associated IVH, and usually you expect that there would be an IVH as a starting point, and then the next day you would look again and then find your hemorrhagic infarction associated with the IVH. Quite a number of children who we found it very difficult to even find a germinal matrix hemorrhage, but not an IVH. So that was kind of also atypical.
2: Yes. And so, what do you think is the Underlying etiology of this—is it just enough to say that it's due to this prothrombotic abnormality that they have, or what do you think is actually going on?
1: Well, it's hard to say that it's really due to this, but one could imagine that we, due to this kind of associated problem, that there is uh, some associated thrombosis of the vein leading up to the germinal matrix and subsequently leading up to the terminal vein, and this may be the onset of this parenchymal infarction.
2: But it is still a little puzzling why they should suddenly do it at three weeks when there didn't seem to be any precipitating factor at this later age that you at least could identify. Am I, am I right about that?
1: Very right. It's very puzzling. In fact, what was interesting was that two of our children so far also developed shortly afterwards the associated necrotizing enterocolitis. Uh-huh. also may have something to do with this factor 5-laying mutation.
2: Yes, well, that's very interesting, and of course, we don't really understand why that happens either. What about the placentas in these children? Do you have any evidence from them that there was something going on there, or any evidence of, of inflammatory processes, or so on?
1: Yes, well, that's a very interesting point that you're raising right now, and in fact, we found that looking initially at the data, we found that there were quite a few children with a fetal thrombosis, and then... Johanneke Hartmann, the first author, she looked at this in more detail, and she found that in about 80% of both groups, we did actually have access to the placenta, and these have now been analyzed. And we do indeed find that in the typical cases, there is significantly more chorea immunitis than in the atypical cases, while in the atypical cases, there is more preeclampsia in the mother, and Uh in the placenta, there is more placental infarction and more fetal thrombosis. So they are definitely different, and that's what we are writing up right now.
2: Yes, and I noticed that there seemed to be more smaller children in your atypical group, although it didn't reach statistical significance.
1: Right, and that's probably also associated with the preeclampsia, which in this subgroup where we did have the placental data, it becomes significant. But
2: it's still an interesting question that why did they present late? You'd think that if they had a placental problem, they might actually present early. So, obviously, there are many questions to to look into here.
1: Yes, well, some actually presented at birth, so they already had an established parenchymal hemorrhage when they came in and others later. So, within this atypical group, there is an early and and and
2: a late presenting group. Although, of course, one or two of those early ones had the the Coal 4A1, rather than the Factor five Leiden, didn't they?
1: There were two sips which we yeah. reported previously that had Coal 4A1. Yeah, So yeah. that's another thing which we may have to look at more carefully. Yeah.
2: What about your normative data? You quote the data for pro-thrombotic incidents in the Dutch population, but were these children all ethnically uh, Dutch, or did they come from a variety of, of backgrounds?
1: Well, no, we were in, in that respect a little bit lucky because they were all Caucasian Dutch children. And we know that in Holland it's about 5% in the population to have the factor five Leiden mutation. But it's an important point because this, of course, difference in the different populations that you can look at. Yes,
2: yes, yes, okay. I noticed that despite the fact that these children didn't have a particularly good outcome, they seemed to have more cerebral palsy as a consequence compared to the typical group, they had fewer seizures. So could you explain why they might have a, a worse motor outcome, but actually seem to have fewer seizures on the, in the neonatal period?
1: Well, we also thought about that, and it could be, in fact, because there are quite a few seven had an antenatal hemorrhagic infarction, so it could be that they already had seizures before they were born although yeah. we don't have a very good uh, history of the mother. Sometimes the mother would say that she felt some kind of particular hiccups or abnormal movements. But it could have been that they had antenatal seizures, but they had resolved by the time they were born. And that's why we actually see fewer seizures than you may have expected in view of these uh, large lesions.
2: Yes, but those ones tended to have larger lesions which might contribute to the poorer outcome. But it's interesting that you found a poorer outcome, as did Mercuri in his study of focal infarction, and the children who had factor V Leiden also tended to have a poorer outcome relative to those that didn't have. So in that respect, these two groups of children seem rather similar. Mm. So it's clearly important to make this diagnosis because they're not such a benign group from a long-term outcome point of view.
1: Yeah, it was interesting to see the agreement with the data of Mercury, and you were involved in that paper as well. So it's good to know that if you have a child with this atypical lesion who, in fact, has got the Factor five Leiden mutation, is more at risk of developing subsequently cerebral palsy. But even having said that, I think that the main predictor is the site and the size of the lesion, and especially we tend to do the MRI at term equivalent age and look for asymmetry of the myelination of the posterior limb of the internal capsule.
2: Yes, I mean, that was the same in the Mercuri paper, that these children all had lesions that involved the internal capsule and the motor pathway. But then the question is, why should factor V Leiden or some other prothrombotic factor give you a predilection to have a lesion in that site? Could there be anything different about the vascularity there that makes it vulnerable?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting point that you're raising, but I have no answer to it. Okay.
2: No, I'm afraid I don't either. In terms of doing all this prothrombotic testing, I noticed you didn't test fathers, and I wondered about siblings, and uh, maybe you could comment on the usefulness of that.
1: Yes, well, first of all, it's a rather costly business. Doing all these tests is about €300 Euros per child all the different genes, so it's quite expensive. And then there was an interesting paper in Stroke in 2009 by an Israeli group from Simchen and others, and they looked at factor V Leiden in the mother and infant, and they found that the maternal thrombophilia was shown to be associated with pregnancy complications, so that's why they actually did go for the mother rather than the father. And, of course, we know that the maternal thrombophilia has been associated with preeclampsia and problems of the placenta. And also looking at this paper, we decided to go for the mother. And also for the mother, of course, it would be important for the next pregnancy and also after birth, the risk of pulmonary embolism, to uh, be aware of the factor 5 Leiden being present or not. So that's why we initially went to go for the mother, and we didn't go for the siblings or the father. There was one family where the mother had had a prior pregnancy with an intrauterine death and most of the children were actually the first child of the family, so we don't have a lot of information about this. Okay.
2: Did any parents refuse to be tested?
1: No, we didn't have any parents who refused so far.
2: No, no, no. And, and in Holland, it would probably be the case here, are there medico-legal or insurance implications about this sort
1: of testing? It would be maybe a little bit less than in the U.S. or or maybe also in the U.K. We did actually point out that it might be uh, not in their best interest to know about this if they were going to buy a house and case like this, but they they prefer to to know and, and be aware of potential problems that may affect their own health as well. And we had one mother who, after a lot of questioning, finally told us that her sister had a myocardial infarction at the age of 27. So I think for the parents, and especially the mother, it may be important to know about this problem.
2: Yes, well, I would think so. But I can understand that some people might not wish to be tested. It certainly is an issue that needs discussing before launching into to doing it, I think. Yes. Uh, if you find a positive result, do you refer then to a hematologist for further advice, or do you do it through them in the first place?
1: Um, We usually talk to them ourselves to start with. We have discussed this uh, at great length with our pediatric hematologists, who initially didn't really think this was terribly important, or they couldn't really believe that it was going to be terribly important. I think they've changed their minds a little bit, uh, and some of the parents, uh, we refer them with the child to the hematologist as well. Yes.
2: And for the child, do you think this finding has any implications for early management, finding a prothrombotic factor? Does it alter how the child is handled or fed or any supplements that are given?
1: No, not really. We always talk about if if the child would break his leg and and would be in traction and immobilized, then it would be important to know and, and tell the pediatrician when the child is admitted. But otherwise nothing really, and, and we always of course also discuss if it's a girl that if she's going to get older and she's going to take the pill that it may be important to be aware of her problem as well.
2: Yes, and, and maybe if they had MTHFR, at least homozygosity and an abnormal homocysteine, which I know none of yours had, some fo- to make sure their folate was-
1: That's right. Was, yes. was, uh, was We'll always also say that the compound heterozygosity of MTHFR may be important. Yes,
0: yes, yes. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Professor Linda de Vries and Dr. Francis Clowen for a very interesting and informative podcast. It really does show the importance of very careful observation in the clinical setting and then studying any unexpected findings and how that can lead to real insights that can affect future management, both for children and for their families. I found it fascinating. Thank you both very much. Just to remind our listeners that the article is entitled, Atypical Timing and Presentation of Periventricular Hemorrhagic Infarction in Preterm Infants, the Role of Thrombophilia. It's authored by Hartman et al. and
2: appearing in the February issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.